Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 41. In this episode, we will be hearing from Stephen Vance, who is taking up Psalm 73 as part of his current series with us. The title of his message is, When You're Tired of Waiting. This is a great message for all of us, especially those experiencing injustice. We're continuing our study in the in the Psalms, and uh, today uh, we're going to look at Psalm 73. And, and I've called this, When You're Tired of Waiting. Because in this psalm, the, the psalmist is, is viewing the prosperity of the wicked, and, and, and he's seeing them prospering, and he's seeing the godly suffering, and he, he's like, this just is so unfair. It's not right what's happening, and, he, and he's tired of waiting. And I don't know if you ever uh, feel that way. There's certainly uh, a lot going on right now. People that are feeling there's a lot of injustice and are tired of waiting. And I wonder if this psalm might just speak into our hearts to let us bring those kinds of feelings to the Lord. This psalm is a, is a psalm of Asaph. It's the first psalm in book three of the psalms. If you remember, there's five books. And um, Asaph is an interesting character. Uh, he's referred to as one of the Levites that was appointed by David in 1 Chronicles 15, along with Heman and Ethan. And they were uh, musical leaders on cymbals of brass. And, and so this was a, a group of people that worshipped uh, the Lord uh, in, the, in the house of the Lord. But what's really interesting about them is, is hundreds of years later, there's still a group uh, in Ezra 3 and 10 that are continuing the praise and worship, still doing cymbals hundreds of years later. And so this was a, a whole family tradition that was developed. And so scholars have been divided. Was this uh, psalm written by the original Asaph, or was it perhaps a, a guild of musical artists in this family? Uh, that's not really terribly important, but we're just going to look at it as the psalm of Asaph, and I want to read it together with you. Psalm 73 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. They're, therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, and in their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance, and they say, How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued and I've been punished every morning. If I had said this, I, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. 
How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you? My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I, wait, I will tell of all your deeds. We're going to begin by looking at this psalm in the context of the psalms and then at the psalm itself. As we've gone through this study, we've studied different genres of psalms. There's been wisdom psalms and sort of lament psalms, sad psalms. There's been royal psalms and praise psalms. And scholars are, are not 100% sure what kind of a psalm this is. It could be a wisdom psalm, like Psalm 1, where the, the way of the, the pure and the righteous is being contrasted to the wicked, encouraging God's people uh, to continue in righteousness and the way of holiness. And we'll see those lessons. But more likely, it's a, a lament psalm because... You know, the life with God is not always on, on a high note in the present because the kingdom values are not reflected in the world. We've seen this. These laments in the past, in Psalm 88 and 89, there was a, a really dark lament that gave us a language by which we could talk to God about our hard things. Last time we studied in Psalm 51, when we encounter personal failure, how we can lament that before God. But here in this psalm, we're, we're thinking of societal unfairness. I think it's very relevant in our time. And you know, when we're tired of waiting for the right to prevail and the wrong to be judged, when it seems that the downtrodden and the oppressed are not getting justice, this is a theme that God is very interested in in the scriptures. He cares for the widow. He cares for the poor. He cares for the oppressed. He is their defender. And this psalm gives us a language in which we can talk to God about these problems. When we look at the immediate context of this psalm, it's very, very interesting. Psalm 72, the last Psalm of Book 2 was a sort of a, a real high note. Let me explain. The first two books of the Psalms, largely as we've noted before, written by David, who had the physical kingdom of Israel, and yet they were, so many of those Psalms were lament Psalms. And we've studied before how this likely reflected that God's people after the exile were so sad to remember David's rule because it seemed like it was in the dust. But in Psalm 72, there's a positive turn because now Solomon is on the throne. The kingdom is continuing. There is a new uh, sort of a continuance of the line of royalty. But now we are plunged into despair again in Psalm 73. Why? Well, the kingdom is not progressing. The wicked are. And this is going to get really dark at the end of this book in Psalm 88 and 89 that we've studied because it doesn't look like God is reigning. And the righteous have always felt this. We've wondered, is God really on the throne? It doesn't look like it. 
And as we've mentioned before, and we will come to it in due course, the answer is in the 90s of the Psalms, where we hear over and over again the refrain, the Lord reigns. It's not David's reign or Solomon's reign. It's the Lord's reign that ultimately brings hope and comfort to God's people. When we look at this psalm, it begins and ends with God's goodness. Verse 1, surely God is good to Israel. And then again at the end, it says, verse 28, it is good to be near God. But sandwiched in between those two goods, there are three surelies. In verse 1, the psalmist says, surely God is good. But then he begins to reflect on the wicked being so well off. And it it seems like God's goodness is almost a, a problem because it's, well, the wicked are prospering. What's going on? My experience doesn't teach me that God is good, is essentially what the psalmist is saying as he wrestles through this issue. But then, in verse number 13, he comes to the second surely. And he says, surely, in vain I have kept my heart pure. I've been good for nothing. Surely God is good, but the wicked are prospering. Surely I've been good for nothing. But he ends this section by bringing it into the presence of God and remembering the eternal perspective. They will slip. But then there is the third surely. In verse number 18, the psalmist says, surely they are placed on slippery ground. But this surely doesn't lead to rejoicing on behalf of the psalmist. He's not glad that they're slipping. Rather, he is reflecting on his own character and he is growing and learning about the Lord's presence in his life. So let's see if we can explore this psalm in a little bit more depth. The psalm begins in verse 1, as I've noted, with the goodness of God. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And what we're going to see here, God's goodness is especially targeted and almost seems like it's contingent on pureness of heart. And we we need to think about this. It's very similar to Psalm 24, where the psalmist asked the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. God is good to those who are pure in heart. And we ask ourselves the question, how does this perspective uh, sort of jive with a sort of a New Testament perspective of of grace? Is this a a works-based righteousness? That we must make ourselves pure in order to come to God? No. A thousand times no. The Old Testament is predicated all on the grace of the Lord. Israel, in her failure as we studied last time, turning away from the Lord, came to discover the Lord is merciful and gracious. The only hope that God's people have in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is his grace. But what the psalmist is saying here, he says, in in Psalm 24, he says, I will not lift up my soul to what is false. You see, some go to idols. They are the false gods, the empties, as the Hebrew would describe them. But he is coming to the Lord. And this, of course, is how we become holy. We become holy by coming to the Lord with a 
pure heart. You know, when we're in our sins, as we discovered in, in Psalm 51, we come with a broken heart and we confess our sin and he purifies us. But what is important here is the motive. Did you notice that in Psalm 24? We need to come with a pure heart. And it's all the interior words. We don't lift up our soul to what is false. And we don't swear deceitfully. This is why when we first got saved, repentance was so important. We needed to come in truth, admitting our sin. And this is how we come as believers as well. We come broken and sinful, as John says, confessing our sins, and we experience his cleansing and renewal. This psalm is not advocating a works righteousness, but it's saying that when we come to the Lord, we must come not in hypocrisy with pharisaical outward cleanliness and purity. No, we come with an inner heart that is broken and repentant desiring truth and sincerity, and this leads to righteous behavior. And so the psalmist begins meditating on God's goodness. But then in verse 2, he begins to, to, to see his problem, and he says, God is good, but I am slipping because of my envy. My feet are slipping. Later he's going to see the wicked slipping. But he begins the psalm by seeing himself slipping as he is envious. You know, there is a, a huge danger in envy. Grace allows us to celebrate the successes and the abilities and the victories of others. But envy doesn't. And envy doesn't destroy them. Envy destroys me. How seductive envy is. And the psalmist is envied envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Brother, sister, we need to be so careful about envy. I'm reminded of the ancient Greek legend, and there was an athlete who had run well, but placed second in the race. And, and, and the, while the winner was sort of uh, showered with praise and had a statue erected in his honor, envy ate away at the man who had placed second. He resented the winner couldn't think of anything else. And he eventually tried to destroy the statue of the winner. Night after night, he would come under cover of darkness, chiseling away, weakening the foundation of the statue. And one night he's chiseling away in violent anger and he goes too far. And suddenly the heavy marble statue teeters on its base and crashes down on the disgruntled athlete. And he dies beneath the weight of the marble replica of the man he had grown to hate. And in the end, his envy destroys him. The psalmist is envious here, but he's going to work through it and come to celebrate the goodness of God and to let the wicked go. But here he's sensing he's starting to slip. Do you sense it in your life, slipping out of envy? What does he see in the wicked? This uh, next part of the psalm is, is the bulk of the psalm. And, and he, describes the, he describes the wicked. And we need, to, we need to think through this because what these 12 verses remind us of is that it's okay to wrestle with the, the fairness issue in the present. That it seems so unfair that the wicked 
are prospering. We'll come ultimately to the eternal perspective, but we start in the here and now, and 12 verses of this psalm are spent here. And what does he see of the wicked? What does he see? He says mainly that they are arrogant. They are arrogant. Verse 3, he says, I envied the arrogant. And then verse number 6, he says, pride is their necklace. And then verse number 8, in their arrogance, they threaten oppression. And so he sees them as their main characteristic is arrogance. You see, the way of the righteous is dependence. The Lord Jesus, as the Son of God, was this way, and and he had all power, and yet what did they say at the cross regarding him? He trusted in God. Righteous people are humble and dependent. The wicked are arrogant. This is an important note to sound in our time, and I'm hesitant to use examples, but it's it's a real example. Uh, This is a a quote from uh, Donald Trump back before he was president. And of course, he's not alone in expressing these kinds of sentiments. This was a tweet back on May 8th, uh, 2013. Here's what he said. My IQ is one of the highest, and you all know it. Please don't feel so stupid or insecure. It's not your fault. You can evaluate for yourself where on the continuum of arrogance to humility that tweet lies. But let's be sure of this. The wicked are arrogant. The righteous are humble. Truly humble. But not just arrogant. He speaks about their their selfishness, their selfish prosperity. What does he say? Verse 3, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, the humble are going to be generous, but the wicked are selfishly prosperous. What does he say? Their bodies, verse 4, are fat. Because in old times, people that were uh, wealthy, uh, you know, they had food. The people that were poor, they were, they were starving. And so he says they're fat, they're, they're prosperous. And, and of course, what he's, he's thinking of here in, in, in scriptures, uh, we're reminded of one of the risks of wealth is forgetting God and trusting in uncertain riches. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, charge the rich not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, the righteous are generous and humble, but the wicked are arrogant and selfish. It's not that godly people can't be wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea, counterexample. But these people are arrogant and selfish in their prosperity. They are not uh, trusting God. They are trusting themselves. I've already mentioned one quote from President Trump. Here's another one from a a January 2016 rally. And here's what he said. And it's the spirit of the age. It's not just him. My whole life, I've been greedy, greedy, greedy. I grabbed all the money I could get. I'm so greedy. But now I want to be greedy for the United States. I want to grab all that money. I'm going to be greedy for the United States. And that sentiment is the way of the world. But the way of the righteous is humble, not arrogant. Dependence and generosity, not 
selfishness. It's like our Lord Jesus, who humbly impoverished himself as the wealthy one, that others might be enriched. He goes on and describes other things. He says, verse 5, that they're free from burdens, not plagued uh, by human ills. And of course, uh, rich people, uh, prosperous, wicked people have their problems too, but, but wealth provides some insulation. But the psalmist can't see their internal problems. Maybe there's an exaggeration here. But he, he, he's just piling it all on. What he sees is the unfairness of the situation. They're arrogant. They're selfishly prosperous. They're problem-free as it seems. They're violent, abusively trying to get their own way, verses 6 and 8, and they are foolish. This is the wickedness that Asaph sees, and maybe you see it. Maybe it's part of the current distress, and of course, violence is not God's way. But you know, when the scriptures are not followed, and the poor and the marginalized are not taken care of, there are laments like this. This is what goes on in people's hearts. And it's okay to wrestle with the fairness issue in the present. That's the first lesson from this psalm. But we want to come to the second surely, because in the second surely, the psalmist says, surely I've been good for nothing. Verse 13, surely I have kept my heart pure in vain. I have washed my hands in innocence. And so now we want to think about the characterization of the godly. We've thought of the characterization of the, right, uh, the unrighteous, arrogant and selfish and, and proud and, and foolish and aggressive. But the characterization of the righteous, what does he say, verse 13? They are pursuing holiness. I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands. You see, instead of the motivations of pride and prosperity, the righteous pursue holiness above all else. And it's a regular commitment. I've washed my hands all day long. I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. And in this discipline of pursuing what's right, there has been a regularity because holiness does not come as sort of a, a random gift out of the sky. It comes, as Hebrews says, to those who are exercised thereby. And of course, the holiness pursuit that the psalmist is describing here is more internal than external. What does he begin by saying? I've kept my heart pure. That's the internal. And then he speaks about washing his hands, the external. And this reflects the entire movement of scriptures. Although there was an external peace in the Old Testament that was very obvious, the movement of scripture is towards internal holiness. And what does it mean? In this passage here, in verse 14, he says, I've been punished every morning. I've been plagued. He's willing to hear rebuke and to repent. And this is the mark of holiness. As a true Christian, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm, I'm perfect. It means that I'm being perfected. I'm on the road. 
And I'm coming to the Lord for my healing and my cleansing. The Christian community is, is not an art gallery where we show off our successes and how holy we are. Rather, it's a hospital where we can come in Psalm 51 style and be cleansed and healed. That's what the psalmist is pursuing here, the pursuit of holiness. But not just a pursuit of holiness marks the righteous. He also reminds himself that there is trouble because the pursuit of holiness involves difficulty and trouble, a purging process that leads to increased holiness. He's been plagued. He's been punished. And, and this is the uniform testimony of Scripture. The righteous go through difficulties. Job, of course, the classic example. He's righteous. He's blameless. And yet he goes through the fire. Christ's word to his disciples in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. And Paul's word to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all that will live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. You see, to be a chosen one in God's economy is to be marked out for suffering. Israel, the chosen nation, no nation has suffered like her. Believers, as we've seen in John 16, are marked out for suffering. And Christ, the chosen one of God, who suffered like him. Hebrews is the great chapter. Hebrews 12 speaks of God's purpose for us in, in difficulty and in discipline. And he says it is for discipline that we need to endure. God is treating us as sons. See, he, he may not be punishing us for our wrongs. He may just be training us in the path of righteousness. And, and the Hebrew writer says it's just like in, in human families, our parents discipline us and train us. It's not, it's not pleasant. It's painful, verse 11 says. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so we need to find a way to take this difficulty as training from the Lord. The trial of our faith is precious. I'm reminded of what Martin DeHaan said in his uh, meditations in Broken Things. I'm all on this. He was writing many years ago, and at that time a bar of steel was worth $5. But he noted that if you made it into horseshoes, it would be worth 10. If you manufactured it into needles, it would be worth 350. But if you took the time to manufacture it into delicate springs for expensive watches, it would be worth more than $250,000. The same steel. And what made the difference in the value was the process, cut to size, passed through the furnace, hammered and manipulated, beaten and pounded, finished and polished. We can mull on what that means in our lives. Maybe God is refining you and you just need to hang on and allow his refining process to carry on. It's not easy. Just to lighten the mood, I'll tell you a story from Swindoll. He talks about four guys that decided to go mountain climbing one weekend in 
middle of the climb, one fella uh, slipped over the, the cliff and dropped 60 feet, landed with a thud. And the other three, they want to rescue him, and they're, they're calling down to him, Joe, you okay? And he says, I'm alive, but I think I've broken both arms. Without thinking, they say, well, just we're going to toss a rope down and, and pull you up. Just lie still. And, uh, and a couple minutes later, you know, they drop the, the rope over and they're starting to tug and they're grunting to get him up and, and working feverishly. And they get him about three-fourths of the way. And, and then they remember that he said he had broken both arms. And they're wondering how on earth or how did he, what's going on here? How's he holding on? And they call down to him and they say, Joe, if you broke both your arms, how in the world are you hanging on? And Joe responded, with my teeth. And maybe that's how you feel. The psalmist felt that way and he brought it to the Lord. But not only are the righteous pursuing holiness and going through trouble. In verse 15, we read his words, If I speak thus, I would have betrayed your children, because the pursuit of holiness also involves other-centered love, not just self-centered enrichment, like the wicked who are violent. And so the psalmist is saying, I have these thoughts, but who can I talk to about them? If I talk in this way, I will stumble others in the community of faith. And so he says, I can only bring it to the Lord, which he does. And it's in this moment that he gets the lesson. If you'll understand where I'm coming from in this message, the first 12 verses taught us that it's okay to wrestle with the unfairness of the present world. But these verses show us that it's important to eventually bring in and remember the eternal perspective. And he remembers the eternal perspective in the presence of God. And he says, the wicked may prosper for a time, but in the broad scheme, they're going down. This is not sour grapes. This is just the truth. And as God's people, we trust God. When we don't see justice in the present, we trust his ongoing justice that will bring it in the end, even though we don't see it yet. But you know, after we have wrestled with the unfairness issue in the first 12 verses, and after we have brought it to the Lord and brought in the eternal perspective, the third thing we need to remember starting in verse number uh, 18, the third surely, is that we need to think about our own character development. Fortified with this new perspective, the psalmist begins to reflect on his own character. He's not rejoicing at the fate of the wicked. He's not saying, oh, I'm glad they're getting what they ought to get. Rather, he's reflecting on himself, and it's a penitent confession like we saw in Psalm 51. What is he doing? He's saying, you've cast them down to ruin. But then he says, my heart was grieved, verse 21. My spirit was embittered. I was like a brute beast before you. It reminds us of the importance of a reflective life. Sometimes we're moving at such high speed, not thinking and never learning. Maybe this is one of the advantages of the COVID time. If we've been able just to take a little bit of time to slow down and think, to evaluate our life, our family, 
our ministry. That's what the psalmist is doing here. And he's a bit bitter and he's acknowledging, I was bitter, I was brutish, I was ignorant, I was, I was beast-like. But in light of the eternal perspective, he now repents and he regrets those inaccurate perspectives. He needed to go through it. We've learned that. He had to wrestle through the unfairness. He can't just avoid those thoughts and those emotions. But he needed to bring it to the Lord. And now he's willing to regret Sometimes we need to realize that we've had perspectives in the past that were off. And God has brought us through. We've wrestled through them and we've come to a new spot and we've been changed. And now we can rededicate ourselves to the Lord. But not only does the psalmist regret inaccurate perspectives, he also appreciates the ongoing presence of the Lord. Verse 23, he says, I'm always with you and you hold me by my right hand hand. You see, it's not just knowing that the wicked will fall. That's the negative perspective, but it's the positive perspective that's going to fortify him, that the Lord is with us at all times. Part A is, I am with you. Part B is, you are with me. Very similar to what the Lord Jesus will teach in the upper room ministry. In John 14, he speaks to his own. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. You're not going to be orphans. And he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me. Security. I am in you. Blessing. And he continues it on in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He's speaking to the Father. He says, on that day, they all, I am praying, they will be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one in us. And then he goes on, verse 23, he says, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. This is what the psalmist is appreciating. The Lord is with me, and I am with the Lord. And this is what lets us go on. And not just the Lord's presence currently, but there is the future hope of glory. What does he say? Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. He has the Lord holding his hand and guiding him through life. But the Old Testament saints had this hope, this hope of future glory upon their decease. I know there's some people that believe that they had a sort of a waiting period, but Asaph didn't agree with that. He said, I have hope. I will die and I will have glory. I will have glory. You will take me into glory. And then he goes on, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. You see, he realized I've got it all. The Lord owns earth and heaven and I've got the Lord in heaven and I've got the Lord on earth. I know hyper-dispensationalists make a big difference. You know, Israel is linked with heaven and uh, with earth and the church is linked with, with heaven, but Asaph wouldn't have been a, a good hyper-dispensationalist. He realized that God ruled over all and that when you have the Lord, you have it all. Like the Lord Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes, the meek inherit the earth. And so, my brother, my sister, I don't know where you're at. But if you're tired of waiting, 
And if you're struggling with the unfairness of society or of your life, take this psalm with you. Start first with the first surely. God is good, even if it doesn't look like it. And allow yourself to wrestle with the unfairness. It's okay to stew in those juices for a while, but don't stop there. Come to the second surely. And remember, it's not just okay to wrestle with the unfairness. It's important to bring in the eternal perspective. The wicked will slip. The righteous will make the trek. But don't stop there either. Come to the third, surely. And fortified with this new knowledge, don't rejoice over the, the downfall of the wicked, but think of your own character. Correct what's wrong. Repent for it. And rejoice in the Lord's presence in your life now and the prospect of future glory. But don't even stop there. Remind yourself again and again and again of where the psalmist started and where he ends. God is good to Israel, and it is good to be near God. We'll end this meditation with a, a beautiful poem. It's written by a, a dear sister, Martha Snell Nicholson, and it's called treasures. And here's what she says. One by one, God took them from me. All the things I valued most. Till I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highways, grieving in my rags and poverty, until I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. And I turned my hands towards heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already 